This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's Better Reading Podcast. My name's Meg Mason. I'm a journalist and author, and this week I'm standing in for Cheryl Ackle, who's en route to Spain as we speak, which means I get the immense privilege of talking to the best-selling New Zealand-born, Australian-based author, Heather Morris. She began her career as a social worker before moving into screenwriting, where she was extremely successful. The Tattooist of Auschwitz was her first novel, and as soon as it was published in 2018, it became a literary sensation, which has sold... Heather, how many copies are we up to now at last count? Somewhere in excess of three million. Which is just extraordinary by any any standards, Australian and international standards. Um, and it's sat in the New York Times fiction bestseller list. I think we're up to week 51, which, considering it's been out for... 52 weeks is pretty impressive. Um, she's been with us at Better Reading before to talk about that book, and now she's here again to discuss its hugely anticipated follow-up, Silka's Journey, which picks up the story of a young woman who did appear in the first novel and follows her story from, picks it up and follows her story from being a 16-year-old inmate at Auschwitz through to her exile in Siberia after the liberation. Although most readers, I'm sure 99% of readers will have read and loved The Tattooist of Auschwitz, the story of how that novel came to be is so extraordinary. Heather, would you mind if we began there for the two or three listeners who haven't yet heard it? Um, you met Lale in 2003. What was happening? What happened from there? Hello. Kia ora. <laughs> Kia ora. Yes, 2003, I agreed to have a cup of coffee with a friend I hadn't seen for many months who just casually said to me, I have a friend whose mother has just died. His father has asked him to find somebody to tell a story to, a story. That person can't be Jewish. You're not Jewish, she said to me. Would you like to meet him? I asked her what was the story, and she didn't know. I said, oh, never mind. Always happy to meet somebody. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, a week later, I knocked on the apartment door of Lali Sokolov with no idea who it was I was meeting that I would start and begin a three-year time in my life with this amazing man, living history he was. Yeah, before I even ask the next question, I need to know why you couldn't be Jewish. Ah, Lali was very clear about that. He couldn't imagine that there would be a Jewish person alive who was not in some way affected by the Holocaust. Okay, right. That so they would have their own family history, their own baggage, as he would put it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was pretty green with my small New Zealand town education about yeah. the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And originally you envisaged this as a screenplay, and mm. then at some point it, it evolved into a novel, which considering you hadn't written a novel before is a really interesting transition. I'm wondering how you, how you decided, oh gosh, it needs to be a novel, and how sort of 
you felt about that, bearing in mind this is a huge project for your first fiction project. Indeed. Well, the screenplay did exist for many years and was actually optioned uh, by a production company in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And they had it for about six years, and then I took the option back because we couldn't get it made here in Australia, even with the help of Film Victoria. Mm -hmm. It was too big a budget, and the interest just wasn't there. I think it was all about timing, really. It always is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Timing is everything. And, of course, life got in the way, having uh, three then young adult and teenage children mm -hmm. uh, got in the way. So how did I decide to turn into a novel? Well, I didn't initially, but I was visiting my brother and sister-in-law in San Diego in California and bemoaning the fact that those buggers 100 miles up the road in Hollywood didn't yeah. know a good story when it hit them over the head. <laughs> when my sister-in-law just looked at me across the table and said, oh, for goodness sake, Heather, write the bloody thing as a book and get on with it. Tough love. She just Absolutely. <laughs> so, no, I didn't decide. It was this uh, sister-in-law who beat okay. me around the head with my bemoaning. Oh, well, presumably she appears in the acknowledgements of the, of oh, the first yes. book. <laughs> um, so tell me, there's so many novels that have been written about the Holocaust, but few or a smaller proportion would have a love story at their centre, arguably, I'd say. Um, I mean, it must have been such an immense challenge to tell that kind of story in that context. So did you feel at any time in the writing before or during or even, you know, towards the end that this actually couldn't be done, that it couldn't, you couldn't manage those two factors? No, I didn't actually, because the love story was what mattered most to Lully. And to him, that was all he wanted the world to know about, this mm -hmm. young girl who he fell in love with under these most extraordinary of circumstances. So to me, it was a love story or no story. That was the driving. That was mm, the, absolutely. the driving force. Okay. And this is, this is a question that, you know, applies to any historical fiction. Um, but it's always that careful balance between fidelity to, to what really happened and the level of invention required to turn it into, to, yeah. into art. Um, how did you manage that side of writing and even the sense of obligation, I suppose, to get the story right, but then knowing, you know, what's required of you as an author? I did go through a period when it was a matter of what do I leave and what do I leave out? And the more I looked at the story in its totality, and to, to tell all of Lally's story would require you to, you know, look at War and Peace or Ulysses <laughs> yeah. as a length, and that didn't appeal to me at all. To me, it came down to... Here's what he's told me. We had researchers in Europe, professional researchers, find as much information as they could to mm -hmm. verify what he had told me. Mm. And considering that 75 to 80% of all the documents from Auschwitz were destroyed, that we did find several documents with Lully's name on it and his number on it, mm -hmm. indicating where he worked in Birkenau. He was under the political wing. We do have those documents. I then had it really clear in my head that, hang on a minute, I'm not telling the story of the Holocaust. Yeah. I'm just telling a Holocaust story. Yeah. And as soon as I got that clear in my head, then it was, I'm telling Lully's story. Yeah, absolutely. And just, I mean, just a quick segue into that research. How did that team come together? Because that's extraordinary to be able to have assistance to kind of go tracking through all of that material. Like, how did you form that? A cohort. Um, by, um, 
getting somebody, employing somebody in the first instance who lives here in Australia, whose role is a professional researcher for film and television, oh, okay, for documentaries. Right. Yeah. So somebody who really knows what they're doing. And she, in turn, had the links into Europe. Right. Because that was her role here. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, so exist, these, these professional researchers for film and television and uh, by default books. Yeah. But it's very interesting that you didn't sort of feel, as I'm sure many authors would, oh, I'm sure I can do that myself. Like you sort of went straight to the professionals at the early yeah. stages. Why do you think that was? Oh, absolutely. Because... I, am, I didn't know how to do it initially. There's Google, of course, but that only shows you so much. Yeah. And unless you can actually read and write you know, some other languages like German and Russian, mm-hmm. then you don't know what to put into Google research. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was, I'm not going to waste my time. Yeah. Get the professionals who know what they're doing. Yeah. Gosh, that's very interesting, very inspiring for historical fiction writers listening. Um. Although the book has been as successful as we mentioned in the introduction, and it's actually still in the number three spot of the New York Times list, it's also attracted an element of criticism for in terms of the historical accuracy of it, which is inevitable, isn't it, with any oh, yes. sort of story like this. Is that something that you sort of braced for prior to publication? I mean, you've obviously included a lot of you know, supplementary material and that's available as well. Um, or did you sort of, I mean, I guess what was your approach to to knowing that there would be some sort of backlash. The funny thing about that is I always expected there would be criticism, but I expected it to come out sooner than it did. Oh, okay. And in, in all honesty, I think I, I don't know about the publishers, became a bit complacent because it was 10, 11 months after the release of the book. Isn't that extraordinary? Really rare that it wasn't exactly. instantaneous. Particularly a book that was out in so many uh, territories. Yeah. It's not like it just came to the awareness of the people who are criticising it. It had been out in their areas and in their countries for a while. So when it did come, it was, what? Hang on a minute. Uh, I I was expecting that sort of nine or ten months ago. Yeah. And there was an adjustment needed. Absolutely. And was there a sense in which what they were sort of, you know, what they'd taken issue with, was it what you expected, you know, the attention would fall in that area or was it something completely different that you couldn't have anticipated that, that they picked up? Look, I expected a lot more flack or some flack to come about the fact that I wasn't Jewish and I was telling a very Jewish story. Mm-hmm. And yet, funnily enough, that hasn't happened. Uh, that's not quite true. I think there may be one or two sort of articles written in the States about that. I'm really happy. I just deflect that through to the wicketkeeper without a second thought. Yeah. The criticism that did come over things like Gita's number and that Silke couldn't possibly have been raped by an SS officer. I actually got angry about that because how naive to think Mm -hmm. that a a German SS officer is not going to touch a girl because she's Jewish. I mean, we're talking spoils of war here, Mm. and and that's women. Mm, But that's well documented. And it's not as well documented as it should be. Okay. And uh, and that's a whole interesting uh, argument, which I suspect will rear its head with Mm -hmm. Silke too. Mm. But we have found the kind of information and the testimonies, and once again... I just revert back to the people who sometimes are making these criticisms were not there. The stories I have told, I have got from people who were there. Mm -hmm. Yes, history and memory don't always waltz and step. Yeah. They can part. But when it comes down to the facts, everyone who existed in that time frame would have seen it in a different way. 
Even Lali said that to me. No two people would have come out and survived Auschwitz and been able to tell you the same thing. And so I just come back to this is Lali's story yeah. now. This is Silke's story, and I have spoken to people who knew her. I have read the testimonies of survivors themselves who refer to her and her role in Auschwitz. Right. I've used the professional researcher once again, this time in Moscow, mm-hmm. to uncover the facts of Vilkusha, the gulag she was in. And is there a sense as well that even if there was any sort of validity to those comments that you can say as an author, this was my intention with the book and yes, there's always going to be, mm-hmm. you know, inaccuracies or things that you have to manipulate to make them fit the narrative. But my intention with the book is, is X. Would you have put that forward as an argument? Well, I would have, but we in fact didn't argue. Right. We chose not to uh, because there was no reason to. It came out and like striking a match, it fizzled and died. Right, because okay. there were enough people who said, well, hang on a minute, does this detract from the story? Does this change any of what happened and what is proven? No, it didn't. Mm-hmm. And so we chose to just let it go. And I have to admit that I possibly wanted to arc up a bit more. There were days. There were days. But I can adhere to the, the wise editors and publishers that that's yeah. around me. And yes, thank goodness. Settle down, Heather. Thank settle goodness. down. <laughs> um, so, now, Silka, what encouraged you or tempted you or forced you to sort of re-enter this story, picking up um, her life particularly? Did you know even while you were writing The Tantoist that there was going to have to, you know, be attention on her in the next novel or, or did you get to the end and think, oh, there's another story there? I hoped when I was writing Tantoist that... I could get to tell her story, but without knowing how this tattoo was going to go and uh, where the publisher's going to come on board mm-hmm. with me. And so by just sprinkling her a little bit into the tattooist was my way of, hey, hang on, here's this girl here, this okay. girl who I have known since the day Lully said to me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Did I tell you about Silka? And then proceeded to tell me a little bit about her. Right. I that knew was back very then. strategic of you. Yeah, so I planted her into the tattooist yeah. and then hoped that, uh, yes, we could do a deal. And okay. we did a deal. You did a deal. So when you were working on the first book, presumably another part of your mind was then percolating her story at the same time and sort of keeping those doors open and just, you know, pinning thoughts about her at the same time. Or did you almost have to put that aside? I'll come back to that. 
Look, I've totally put it aside because I got carried away and swept up in, in traveling and promoting Tattooist. Mm-hmm. But the wonderful thing was, and I think this is what was the, the clincher for us, thousands of people write to me. I'm not kidding, thousands. And what was the overwhelming thing that they were saying after they thanked me for writing the book and telling me what it meant to them? What happened to Silka? Okay. I'm not kidding. Time and time again, every other email, I need to know more about Silka. How interesting. There it was. Yeah. So when we put out a trailer that says if people were asking what happened to Silka, we didn't make that up. That's actually. They continue yeah. to ask. So they handed, they, they demanded it. They from demanded you, it. Um, even so, I can imagine that as a writer inhabiting that kind of mental place every day for many days in a row it can be quite harrowing. Um, was there any sense of reticence about sort of returning to that, at that time, a sense of like, oh, here we go, <laughs> back well, into the mines? A little bit, given that, uh, her role in Auschwitz was one of the things that uh, I've been criticised for. Interesting. Yeah, you know, she had three little sort of walk-ons, using them, yeah, theatrical yeah. phrase, and tattooist, and she was being picked out and slammed as this didn't happen by uh, certain uh, historians. And so, of course, there was going to be, well, that just made me dig my heels in all the more, actually. Right. And, and so, well, no, you do need to know what happened. But I got carried away, of course, with uh, promoting, and then it was a matter of, well, yes, we'd like you to tell the story. There's so much demand for hearing about her. That then required me to get into her headspace. Yeah. And to go back to all my notes and the research. And I had been a little bit sneaky, actually. Those researches we used back in 2005 to uncover information about Lully and Gita, mm-hmm. I sent them a little quiet note on the side. Oh, by the way, if you find out anything about Silke, Cecilia Klein, here's her date of birth. You know, can you give it to me? Did you pop it in a separate yes. file? Yeah. Um, and they did. Gosh, you're such a Ford planner, which is not necessarily the, the, the typical personality of a writer. Some seem to think way into the future and others just seem to write what comes to them on the day. Um, tell me, Lale and do you, Lala, you've met and talked yes. to and had many interviews with over the course of planning the book. Silke, you didn't no. meet. So how did that impact how you approached the novel? Presumably it required a completely different approach as well as you yep. knew the story. You needed to go back to sort of square one and think, how does this book get written? Absolutely. Now, I had the information that came about her at a time in Auschwitz-Birkenau in not only testimonies, written testimonies of other people from other countries, you you can get access to them, but I got to meet many, many survivors in Australia, particularly Melbourne and one or two in Sydney, one here in Sydney who I still visit, Mm -hmm. and heard firsthand from them about her. So I knew about her time there, and then I found out, of course, that she had been sentenced to Siberia, that she was there in Auschwitz on the 27th of January when the Red Army came in and liberated and she never left there, never went home. And it was then a matter of, well, what happened to her? And then I found out through listening to Silke, no, Gita's show a tape, she talked about visiting Silke in the 1970s. So I already knew that she'd survived and she'd got back to Slovakia. It was a matter of then trying to find people into Slovakia who could talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky to, to go there and meet people who knew her. Mm. and could tell me what they knew about her. 
and then the Russian researcher came on board and uh, flew her. I got, well, here is the camp she was in. She was in the one camp the whole 10 years. Mm-hmm. Here are testimonies from women who were in that very camp. So I was able to get a really clear picture of what life was like in that exact camp in that exact time by other women who had survived and made testimonies. Mm-hmm. So for me to then imagine the life that Silka had lived in Borkuta wasn't difficult at all. Mm. And given that those people who I met in Slovakia were able to give me the little bit of background of, well, she worked in the hospital, she got trained to be a nurse, and, and little snippets that they were able to share with me that I was able to then, mm. that explains how she survived. She mm. was inside. And so from the beginning of the project to publication, you know, however long that that is. Not very long. Well, I was going to say, what proportion of that time is just research and note-taking and interviewing and what proportion is is writing and drafting and editing and that sort of thing? How does the breakdown work? The research was me going into Slovakia and I've been in there about three times in the last 12 months Mm -hmm. visiting people who knew her and just recently in, in June, seeing some amazing documents that related to her and her family and where she was born and where her family lived. And I stood outside the very house where she and her family lived when they were taken to Auschwitz. But I read somewhere many, many years ago that the best way to write a historical fiction novel was to research, research, research. Now throw the bloody research away and write the thing. Okay. So when I then sat down to write it, and I did write it very quickly, I had not one piece of paper in front of me. If I hadn't got that facts and the storylines in my head, then I couldn't tell them. Right. So there's a sense in which you'd internalized mm-hmm. all of it and it was there and it, it had formed and then it's it's ready to, to just emerge organically, as it were. Absolutely. And that's the only way I can actually write. I, I can't sit there with pages of documents in front of me. And then you went back and looked at the timelines and I had to adjust some things for timelines. Yeah. Once again, like writing about uh, the Holocaust, Borkuta and the Siberian Gulag system, it's got timelines too. Yeah. I mean, I can't go knock and style and off before he was knocked exactly. off. Exactly. There is technical constraints, much more so than any yes. other novel where the whole world is invented by the author. Absolutely. Did that give you a sort of structure or a framework that you actually liked being bound by, as it were? Or, or yeah. were there times when you thought, oh, I just wish I could move this by two weeks? Or Well, two weeks is not a problem. Uh, probably only you know, one year is kind of a time frame. Because <laughs> I'm talking yeah. about a 10-year period yeah. in Volkuta that she was there. And so there was the flexibility of moving things around. Um, I had the research that told me what was going on in that camp all through these times. I knew what technology was available in those times and what that camp was all about. It was, it's, it was and still is a coal mining area. So with all that knowledge and information, these wonderful testimonies, I just imagined and wove together mm-hmm. the story that Silka would have lived. Yeah, and I suppose in a way, therefore, you're telling a collective story of many women who were there Absolutely. and their experience. You'd have a sense of she's emblematic of, of something that Absolutely. thousands of women won't have their stories individually told. But Yeah, and that's the same as the Holocaust. Uh, again, it's not that story of a Siberian gulag. It is just a story and all these amazing ladies who did go to the trouble of surviving and then writing about mm. it or giving testimonies. Yeah, cheers to them. Yeah, no, it's it's extraordinary. We can't imagine it 
Um, tell me, readers are sort of asking, I've seen, you know, on various discussion sites, whether you can read Silka as a standalone novel or whether you would say as the author, oh, no, you must read The Tattooist first in order to sort of enter into the second text. Yeah, I would have thought you needed to read Tattooist. But then just recently I was pretty much forced by my publisher in London to go and read some of the reviews on Goodreads. Right, which um, is always um, dangerous territory for an author. It is. And, and self-esteem. <laughs> not something I'm a fan of and yeah. I had been dodging it. And because it got released, uh, Gally's prints out in the US and got released, and so I did go and read some of these uh, amazing reviews. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that stood out was several people wrote... I read this not having read The Tattooist, and it stands alone. Right, confirmation. They then said, however, I now will go back and read The Tattooist. Yeah. Good. Yes. But, uh, and other people who have read it and had read The Tattooist said, it can stand alone. Yes. Interesting. That's interesting. And as a side note, I would say to the husbands and wives of writers listening, could they please block us out of of Goodreads on our browsers so that we can't stray down that depressing rabbit hole when we're having a low day. It's a dangerous, dangerous enterprise. Yes, it is. Um, best avoided. Yeah, best avoided. Um, so tell me, well, you may not be able to tell me, but tell us as much as you can about where we are with Tattooist also being turned back into a film, having started the Tattooist as a film. Mm-hmm. Could it could it now come full circle? It's not going to come full circle, as it were, and be made into a feature film, but I'm going to be meeting in a couple of weeks' time when I'm back in London the producers who are actually making it into a six-part miniseries. Oh, interesting. That sounds actually like it could suit the format, could actually suit the text more. Absolutely. Six hours versus two hours, no contest for me. Yeah, no, No. it's true. And the stories being told in that format at the moment are just, you know, that's sort of where all the attention is. Exactly, and so when we had offers for both feature film and for the our miniseries, to me was yes, please, can we have the miniseries? Yeah, and last of all, you're promoting, you're about to hit the road again, mm-hmm. and all of that sort of thing. Is there another novel percolating at the same time, or will you let yourself have a short sabbatical before you get back to the? metaphorical typewriter you know when you're an old chook like me <laughs> you don't get to say oh I think I'll take a year or two off um, I, I did a gig with Paulina Simons a few weeks ago when she was in Melbourne she and I uh, were on the stage together in Melbourne and she was saying oh it's been seven years and I'm going holy moly no I can't do that yeah. um, seven months is about even that's point going to be pushing it okay so yes there is one or two things percolating away yeah. and uh Hopefully something will be decided in the next several months or three or four months. Yeah, and probably presumably next, though your husband year. and children and grandchildren, when you set out on one of these books, think, oh, okay, we're not going to see Grandma for another eight months. <laughs> She's gone. Well, she disappeared yeah. again. I, I'm not winning any sort of favours with my daughter right now. <laughs> four weeks ago today, I was in the delivery room with her while she gave me another beautiful little grandson. Oh. And as she's pointed out to me, when I leave in less than three weeks' time, when I come back, he will more than have doubled his age. <laughs> Oh, well, so the motherhood guilt never dies then. It's good no, to know. It's good it, to um, know. And that is the toughest thing for me. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you're doing amazing work and important work, so I hope that's some compensation. Well, thank you. And we have so enjoyed speaking to you. We're very grateful that you'd speak to us first about this amazing and highly anticipated novel. So all the best with it, wow. and we cannot wait to see read it for those of us who haven't and see it on screen, see them both on screen. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thank you, Heather. Thank you.
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.